Have you missed me? I've definitely missed you. Let's do this. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 301, Common Folk. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and I just launched a new members episode covering the lives of household slaves. Members are going to learn about how those who found themselves enslaved in the Dark Ages lived and worked, and we talk about the status that household slaves brought to an estate. And for the price of about one latte per month, you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And it's been forever since I thanked some members, so let's do a few extra. Thank you very much to Beth, Juan, Stephanie, Jan, and Terry for signing up already. This show wouldn't survive without you and all the other members like you. Thanks. Today, we're wrapping up this cultural series with a focus on my favorite group of people. People who rarely, if ever, get talked about. The commoners. Now, there's many reasons why commoners don't get a lot of medieval press. The most absurd reason is that throughout history, many people, including many historians, prefer to identify with the nobility. And we even see that same bias in our modern times. Take the Oscars as an example. Some people, a lot of people, have Oscar parties. And they actually dress up for them like they're going to a gala. And do you think they're doing that because they're super invested in who wins best sound design? Do you think they even know who's nominated for best sound design? No. I'd say the vast majority of the people who throw those parties even the ones who are just plopped on a couch in Apalachicola, are doing it because they want to feel like they're a part of it. And not a part of the people who are winning best lighting design in a feature film. They want to feel part of the people who go to those events. They're identifying with the attendees, the wealthy directors and actors, even though those same directors and actors have never lived in a double wide. Here's another example. If you watch the latest Avengers movie, you're identifying with the heroes. Or, you know, maybe Thanos, depending on your mood. But who you're not identifying with is the random screaming person trapped in their car, even though that's the person that you have the most in common with. People, even scholars, trend towards identifying with the larger-than-life figures, rather than the people whose lives look a lot more like their own. So it's no surprise that the lives of common folk often get buried by the avalanche of material that's rehashing the life of Henry VIII, you know, for the umpteenth time. And you might be saying, well, hey, that's a bit unfair. The commoners weren't written about all that much, so it's not our fault that we don't talk about them now. But the written record is just a very small part of history, and many times it's not even the most illuminating part. Furthermore, if we pay attention, we can actually see the shadows of their lives in that very same written record. You just have to be looking for it. So today, we're looking. And let's begin with an aspect of life that was familiar to many people living in the Middle Ages. And it's an aspect that most of you have also experienced. Being a tenant. The vast majority of the population were living on lands that were owned by other people. Now, some were slaves, but most weren't. But they were still living in some form of tenancy. They were tenant farmers, peasants, that sort of thing. Because unless you had book land, you were a tenant. And you might be assuming that this was purely low-ranking people. But when we look at surviving leases, we find that many tenants were thanes. Low-ranked thanes, but still thanes. 
pretty much everyone but the most powerful members of society were living on lands that were owned by someone else. And that meant that those powerful people literally held control over their lives. If tenants wanted their basic needs met, you know, shelter and food, then that meant keeping their landlords happy. And this power imbalance meant that the landlords were able to extract a heavy price for that tenancy. Here's one example of a tenant agreement. Quote, He shall pay rent and payment for pig pasturage yearly, and ride and carry and lead loads, work and entertain his lord, reap and mow, cut the deer hedge and maintain the stall, build and hedge the manor house, make new paths for the vill, pay church scot and alms free, and perform half-worthware and horseware, and go on errands far and near as he is bidden, end quote. Now, Halforthware and Horseworth were the duties of looking after your lord's horses and falcons. Because, of course, he had horses and falcons. But you'll notice that there's a hell of a lot of duties that are required of this tenant. And keep in mind that all of this, including the church scot and alms free, was in addition to the food rent that the poor tenant already had to pay. Not to mention his expected ability to serve in the furred whenever it was called up. And here's the brutal part. This particular agreement isn't even all that onerous. Here's what was expected of the tenants of the bishopric of Oswaldslow. Quote, they shall fulfill the full law of writing as writing men should. They shall pay in full all those things which justly belong to the rights of the same church, which in English are called church scot and tack. That is payment for pastoring pigs and the other dues of the church. In addition, they shall hold themselves available to supply all the bishop, they shall lend horses, they shall ride themselves, and moreover, be ready to build bridges and do all that is necessary in burning lime for the work of the church. They shall, at their own will, make deer hedges for the bishop's hunting, and they must send their own hunting spears to the chase. Further, to meet the many wants of the bishop, whether to fulfill the service due to him or to the king, they shall always, with due humility, be subject to the authority and will of that commander who presides over the bishopric, on account of the benefice which is least to them, end quote. So not only do you have to pay rent, but you also need to ride with your lord, act as his messenger, act as his escort, build his hunting hedges, help him in his hunt, and even lend him your hunting tools. And of course, you also have to make yourself available for anything else the bishop decides you might need at any time. And if you didn't, well, then you might find yourself homeless and lordless. And as we learned last episode, lordless people could be declared outlaws and killed with impunity. So chances are, if your landlord wanted something done, you better get to work. Now, of course, a contract is a contract and a bargain is a bargain. And the lawyers listening might be thinking, well, okay, so I get that the right to use the lands is part of the consideration, but is there anything else that's in play? Are there any duties or rights that go in the other direction? After all, there's often two sides to a deal. And thanks for interjecting, counsel. So what were the duties that a lord had to their tenants? Well, the truth is, but there actually weren't all that many constraints on lords. King Athelstan tried to reform the legal system a little bit, and he created new laws that would punish lords who refused to enforce the law, or actively work to protect the guilty. And those are nice reforms to have, provided that you're the king, because the king is the one who writes the laws. But that's clearly a pretty low bar. 
and it tells you how few constraints the lords had prior to Athelstan, and how much potential corruption there was inherent in this system. I mean, if you have to write down, yo, you've got to actually enforce the laws and don't let the guilty go free, well, chances are that was happening before he did that. And the fact is that constraints on lords were so light that when I went looking for a description of them, I found a scholar writing about how when a lord provides surety at court over a guilty subject, they don't automatically get a share in that justice. So here's what that means. Imagine that Umfirth steals something in Apperley. Well, in that case, he'd be dragged before the Hundred Court, or maybe before the court at Gloucester. And if Unferth was your retainer, you could attend that court on his behalf. However, if he was found guilty and a fine was incurred, the elderman would get the share of the justice. Not you. Because it's who has rights over the land that gets the third penny, not who has rights over the person. And keep in mind that this was discussed as part of the constraints placed on lords. The fact that they couldn't effectively monetize their subject's criminal behavior because someone else was already monetizing it was described as a constraint. So yeah, these guys pretty much had a free hand. Now, naturally, the laws still did apply to lords, so they couldn't go off and like kill a tenant or something like that. But as demonstrated by Athelstan's reforms, they might have been getting away with literally murder for quite a while, assuming they were able to grease the right palms and avoid the courts. So that's our starting point. One where the common folk don't have the freedom to move, they don't have the freedom to choose a master, they don't have the freedom to seek to better themselves, and, on top of that, they're required to carry out whatever their landlord demanded of them out of fear of being evicted and declared an outlaw. Meanwhile, so long as the lord isn't willfully evading the laws, he's free to do pretty much whatever he wants, and his only main constraint is that he might not be able to monetize you quite as much as he'd like to. And that's not because of a recognition of your basic duties, but rather because someone up the ladder was already extracting that money from you. So that's where we're at. But who you pay your taxes to, who you work for, and what sort of stupid homeowners association obligations you've been locked into are just one part of the lives of everyday people. And there's another change that's been developing so slowly it's almost invisible. And this has to do with the question of who is permitted to do violence. After the withdrawal of Rome, things got a bit rambunctious on the island. And this was a change, because while the empire was rolling, Rome claimed exclusive dominion over violence. But when they left, that playing field opened, and it resulted in war bans, blood feuds, and all the things that we become quite accustomed to during our tour of the Middle Ages. Eventually, this gave rise to the Ware Guild, the Man Price. And the thinking was that to stop the blood feuds, it would be agreed that if someone killed someone else, then they owed the victim's family a specific sum, and then the matter would be settled. And that worked for a while. But things have changed. And as the lords have expanded their wealth and status, they also expanded their control over violence. Watching the legal codes develop, we see that the power to punish and the power to execute begins to reside with the state and not the individual. We also see a change in archaeology. This is an era where we start to see an increasing number of deviant burials, basically non-typical burials, which can indicate a potential outsider status for the occupant. And many of these deviant burials are found in boundary areas, or no-man's lands, places that seem to be execution spots. And here's the thing. These bodies in these burials show clear signs of execution. So what this means for the commoners 
is that the clannish culture of the early period was coming to an end. And now, if you were a commoner, you wouldn't go to your family group in search of justice. You would go to the state. Which, as we've discussed, might not work out, since the lords apparently weren't always on the up and up. So your life as a commoner meant that you were at the mercy of a corrupt and often capricious government run by people who had little in common with you and who felt no responsibility towards your well-being. And while you can never escape death and taxes, you also couldn't escape the more mundane realities of your daily life either. Health and diet. And this is where archaeology becomes super useful. Because while the written record only gives us hints as to the way regular lives were lived, like tenant records, the archaeological record shows us a great deal more about the actual daily lives of the people who make up the majority of these people now being called the English. But the thing about archaeology, and history in general, is that every piece of evidence is evidence of a particular time and place. That means that they are all unique, and we always have to be mindful of that when we extrapolate findings. The burials of one location might show different health, ages, and sexes than the burials of another location. These graves contain individuals, and as such, they each have their own stories. Furthermore, like individuals, communities have their own characters and trends. And what this means is that when we talk about things like lifespans, there's variation that can depend on all manner of factors, including genetics, diet, lifestyle, wealth, disease, war, the list goes on and on. But there are some trends, and we're going to talk about those trends in broad strokes. As you might remember back when we were talking about the Roman occupation, we discussed the impact that the occupation had upon the health of the local population, and how upon the arrival of the Romans, the vast majority of the local Britons immediately became shorter, sicker, and died younger. Like, immediately. And this was something that persisted throughout the occupation. But here's where it gets fun. You might also remember that once Rome withdrew, lifespans lengthened, people got taller, and they were also healthier. I know that flies in the face of the fire and brimstone account of Gildas, but largely what he was talking about was politics. This group is fighting with that group, this leader is being a bit too sinful, that sort of thing. He wasn't talking about the health of the general population. Furthermore, the idea that people got healthier after Rome also flies in the face of what we imagine as progress. People tend to look at stone structures and assume that that means that everyone was doing really well. But Britain, under Roman occupation, suffered brutal inequality. And it was this inequality that made those structures possible. And when Rome withdrew, those inequalities lessened. And as a consequence, there were fewer stone buildings, but the lives of the common people largely improved. But that was a long time ago, and over the centuries, this situation has shifted. It happened slowly, but bit by bit, aristocratic structures began to assert themselves and consolidate power. And by the point that we're at in the show, we're back to intense social inequality. By the 10th century, a very small group of individuals were living off the labor of large numbers of individuals who were either literally slaves or were locked into a tenancy system where they might as well have been slaves. And that starts to be reflected in the archaeological record. The inequality becomes so extreme that it is etched into the very bodies of the people who were living through it. For example, we see changes in bone structure and changes in height. 
An examination of the graves at Rounds and Wareham Percy found that medieval one-year-olds were roughly the same size as modern babies. And that difference got worse in adolescence. 14-year-olds from about this period were roughly the same size as modern 10-year-olds. And for a young boy, that's about a foot behind schedule. And what's interesting is that while these children were smaller than their modern counterparts, if they lived long enough, they stood a good chance of reaching the full height of a modern adult. The trick, though, was living long enough to get there. Modern people tend to reach their full height at about the age of 18. But for the common folk of the Middle Ages, well, they probably wouldn't see their full height until they are fully about 29. So, why were they so short? Well, it was because they were unhealthy. And this unhealth began before they were even born. Looking at the grooves on baby teeth, which begin to form while the baby is still in the womb, we're able to see the telltale signs of stress from malnourishment. And that means that women were often sick and malnourished during their pregnancies. And then when we look at common folks' adult teeth, we see more signs of extreme malnutrition that was taking place during their childhood and beyond. The absolute numbers of people experiencing persistent malnourishment can vary. Some communities had widespread signs of malnutrition, and there was actually one cemetery where every single child buried there had hypoplasia, which is the scientific name for those telltale malnutrition grooves in the teeth. But other communities had a more scattered distribution of these problems, with some individuals suffering from it, while others appearing to be fine. So what does this mean, you know, beyond the fact that you had a number of people who were short and had unhealthy-looking teeth? Well, these people were also likely developmentally delayed, and sexual maturity in particular would have developed later in life. This malnourishment would have also had a significant social impact, because studies have shown that people who suffered from childhood malnutrition are also more likely to be learning disabled, to have anger management problems, to respond to the unknown with fear, and to have reduced independence. So what we're talking about here are societies where a lot of people behave like your crazy uncle after a few drinks on Boxing Day. And unlike height, which would eventually normalize by their late 20s, the social and mental impacts of malnutrition can persist for the rest of their lives. Furthermore, economically, the issue of delayed physical development and sexual maturity is a huge problem for a society that was built around the exploitation of physical labor. Because not only does it mean that it'll take extra time for you to produce the next generation of workers, but it also means that you'll be inefficient to pretty much any task you're assigned to, simply on virtue of your reduced strength. Furthermore, childhood stresses like extreme malnutrition result in reduced resilience to infection, injury, and disease. Which means you might not live very long. And even if you do, you might find yourself carrying debilitating scars as a result of the ailments that... Had you been healthier, you might have been able to more effectively fight off. And sure enough, when we look at skeletal remains, we see signs of anemia, disease, low birth weight, infection, parasites, inflammation, and all the other markers that a scholar looks for in people who are living in unhealthy conditions. And all of this would have made a life of hard labor much more difficult. So when we're talking about people working out in the fields, in the organization of new villages where peasants could gather support for each other in their tasks. This might have been a reaction to an increasingly unhealthy and therefore more needy population. As the lords extracted more and more from their subjects and their lands, the workers that were generating that wealth were getting sicker and weaker. 
the inequality that was financing the lord's lifestyle was beginning to actually reduce the productivity of the region. And wouldn't you know it, it wasn't long before the lords figured out a way to increase their wealth extraction. Not through a better diet or lifestyles for the workers, just through reorganizing the workers to be closer to the fields and to one another so they could still work, even though they were sick and weak. And something to keep in mind is that when we look at these skeletons and we see signs of illnesses, those are left by ailments that the individual survived. That's how you end up with marks on your bones. You have to live with the disease long enough so that it could actually leave evidence. Consequently, the people who died quickly of an acute illness might have skeletons that appear healthy. So we're likely not even seeing the sickest among the community. Weirdly, we're seeing the portion of the population that survived, at least for a time. And the truth is, the scourge of illness and famine very well could have been worse than what the evidence tells us directly. And then there's the basic issue of mortality. How long did people live? What did these communities look like on a demographic level? And again, it varies from place to place. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, the big trick here is getting out of childhood. But even once you do, your numbers aren't all that great, especially for women. Women died young. Imagine that you were part of a generation of young women at Apperley. You lost some of your friends to childhood illness and things like that. But now you've got a group of girlfriends who made it past childhood. It wasn't easy, but you're here now. And you're teenagers. And height-wise, you're probably only about as tall as an 11 or 12-year-old today. But for your community, you're getting close to that age where you might want to start to think about a family. So there you are, hanging out with your girlfriends. People you've known all your life. And I'm generalizing here, but based on the averages compiled from the remains found in several cemeteries there's a good chance that half of those friends who made it to the age of 15 would be dead within a decade. Half, by the time you reach 25. And that meant that half would actually be dead before they are even fully grown, thanks to the delayed development that was brought on by malnutrition and illness. The men actually had a better survival rate. Oftentimes, men were twice as likely to reach 35 as the women in their community. Twice as likely. Now, the causes for why there's so much mortality among women could vary, but a pretty big one was pregnancy and childbirth. And this is the story throughout history, though history has long ignored it. Far more women have died giving birth than men have ever died fighting in battle. And as we talked about, we see plenty of signs that pregnant mothers were suffering from illness and malnutrition. And the fact is that childbirth is dangerous even when you're healthy and you have access to modern medicine. And these commoners didn't. Consequently, people dying young, including family members, would have been a common experience. And think about what that would do to you, and what that would do to the outlook for a community. Many first-time mothers would have been giving birth without the support of their own mothers, because their mothers would already be dead. My nana was a major figure in my life, but had I been born during this era, I likely never would have known her. Furthermore, because men were twice as likely as women to reach the age of 35, that meant that there would have been a lot of widowers. So what happened there? Did they remarry? And if so, what would that mean for younger men, since they were now trying to compete with older and more established men for a partner? Also, while men having double the chances of reaching 35 sounds pretty good, those odds were still pretty bad. So what happened to the children who lost both parents? 
You have to imagine that these peasant villages had orphans. Life as a commoner must have been bleak. And life only got more bleak as common folk moved into towns. In places like London and York, we see signs of infestation, infection, and disease. And that makes sense. It isn't like these towns had effective sewage systems or water purification plants or any of the other systems that make city living possible today. Instead, we're dealing with people having cesspits in their backyards and grabbing a bucket of water from the stream, which runs right next to a bunch of cesspits. The smell of these towns alone would have been overwhelming. But beyond that, it was also dangerous. And not just for illnesses linked to poor sanitation, like dysentery, but they also functioned as breeding grounds for the bigger marquee contagions. Ailments like tuberculosis and leprosy, which were actually rather rare in small rural settlements and usually died out before they could spread too much. But in urban settlements, they could rage like wildfire. And we're now approaching the period where the population concentration and the poor sanitation were reaching levels that would allow them to do exactly that. So as we move forward in the story and we talk about towns and cities, always have this in the back of your mind. These places weren't just bustling markets. They're also smelly hot spots for disease that left large numbers of the population disabled or even dead. Depressing, right? But there were some people who were doing okay. There was a group that was starting to construct buildings out of stone, just like the Romans did. And it was a group that also had varied healthy diets. And they had systems built to provide safe drinking water, or at least as safe as they could make it. They even organized their homes to reduce the risk of contamination from sewage. And wouldn't you know it? They tended to live much longer lives. Rather than over half of them dying before 25, many times, two-thirds of them would live beyond 40. And I'm talking, of course, about the lords and the clergy. They were doing pretty great. Though that being said, they weren't entirely spared from disease. Archaeologists have identified telltale marks of illness in their skeletons too. Particularly the ones for type 2 diabetes and obesity. If you have any I'm questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Reddit, and you can join all our other communities by going to the Communities tab of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I